we go. I think I'm on right now. So, Father, I just want to just thank you one more time again, Lord, that we are just free in you. Lord, all we have to do is look to you, Lord. In your name, amen. Well, welcome back, ladies. We are in the home stretch of completing the book of Romans with 11 more lessons to go. I know I says 11 more lessons to go, but it's going to go by real fast. I think I'm real loud, and I think I'm going to take this off. And I got my high-rise pants on today. (laughs) Feeling comfy. Well, diving deeper into the foundation of our faith, and hopefully when we close the last lesson in our books of Romans, that we as Christian women will know even more about God's word and the passion that the Apostle Paul had in making sure that the church in Rome, along with us here in this room, understood what he was saying and repeating, as we have read over and over, very important issues and concerns. In chapter 7, Paul continues to tell us how we have been freed from the law. And of course, looking closer at what the value of the law meant to the Israelites and the value that we place in God's word. Taking these truths into our hearts and living them out in our lives daily. And of course, the answer is our memory verse. Has, did anyone here know, can say the memory verse? Let's all say it together. (laughs) I don't think it's on there. Well, it's Romans chapter 7, verse 6, so if you have your books open, let's go ahead and say our memory verse together, which is the answer to that question. And here we go. But now we have been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by, so that we should serve in the newness of the Spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. Amen. So let's go ahead and recap just to bring everyone up to speed. Chapter 1 deals with the perversity of sin, and it doesn't matter if they were Gentiles or Jewish before they became Christians. Everyone will be saved. There is This is all because God so loved the world, John 3.16. Chapters 2 and 3 deals with the pervasiveness of sin before we get all judgmental about others. There's one thing to remember when you pass judgment or on someone else, that makes you just as bad as they are. And you can say, wait, hold on a second. That can't be right. I totally know that God hates all these things, so isn't it fine for me to point them out if someone's doing it? And Paul says, no. When you judge someone else, It's like you're saying you've never done nothing bad, and we all know that's not true, because remember the rainbow eraser you stole in third grade. (laughs) Or whatever it is that's still haunting you. (laughs) Basically, the idea is that you shouldn't call other people out for doing something wrong when you're doing stuff wrong too, but judging is so fun, and we love it, and it feeds our flesh. God is a kind and gentle person. He's trying to help you be kind and gentle. 
But if you spend all your time getting angry about what other people are doing and what they're not doing, then he can't really make a dent in that. Anger is a tough armor to crack. And once you've filled your heart up with anger, which is another word for bitterness, God's going to have to give that right back at you at Judgment Day. So sorry, angry hearts. It's not looking good for you. Chapters 3 through 5 deals with the penalty of sin. Paul tells us that the Jews were the first people God shared his wisdom and laws with, but stresses that Jews and Gentiles are on the same footing. No one gets a head start in the race to salvation. This is basically because God sent Jesus to save everyone in the entire world. God is going to save everyone who believes in Jesus, no matter what their background was before they came to believe. Everyone sins. That means everyone needs Jesus. It's pretty simple. God did all this for us because he's a forgiving God. He essentially just erased all of our previous sins from his heavenly ledger and decided to give all of us a do-over every morning when we wake up from having a bad day from the day before, how many times can we just ask God to please give us a do-over in life? I just want to do that day over again. I just want to say that in a nicer tone to my husband. I just want to give my kids that extra hug so it's a do-over. The word Paul uses to describe this over and over again, as we all know, is the word justified. So really, the big takeaway here is that no one should go around bragging and shouting from the rooftops that they have some special access to God. God gives everyone access to him through Jesus, and that's everyone. One of our biggest struggles as humans is pride, the need to puff ourselves up. We are better than the person next to us. Because it's a feel-good emotion. So say to the person next to you, I'm not better than you. I'm not better than you. (laughs) (laughs) Chapter 4. Faith, faith, faith. Paul is really clear on this point. Like Abraham, no one has to work to get into the kingdom of heaven. What all do we need, ladies? Grace, faith. Chapter 5, even though Paul looks down on Christians bragging about their accomplishments, he does say that there are a few instances where it's good to get a little boastful. Basically, Christians can brag about what God has done for them and their assurance that one day they're going to be hanging out with him in heaven. In chapter 6, deals with the death blow to the power of sin. What then? Shall we keep on sinning so that grace may abound? Everyone said, no. How can we who have died to sin continue to live in it? We become slaves to whom we obey. In other words, we have been saved from a pile of quicksand. What on earth would we want to go pitch our tent right next to it and have the potential to fall back in? So, The four P's, the perversity, the pervasiveness, the penalty, the power, and the preoccupation. And today in chapter 7, I'm only going to hit the first 13 verses of the preoccupation of sin. 
And the word I looked at, preoccupation, the state of a condition of being preoccupied or engrossed with something. And we're going to learn half of that today and half of that next week. We are slaves to either righteousness or unrighteousness. We're either under new management or out with the old, in with the new. And now we come to chapter 7. So if you will, please turn with me to chapter 7. Paul will deal with the preoccupation with sin. Paul reminded us in chapter 6 that the believer is free from sin. When we died, we also died to sin's control over us. Yet God did not destroy the old nature. He gave the believer a new nature which means that we continue to be susceptible to the temptations of the old nature. Now, when I first read that, I was like, why? Why couldn't God just, like, give us the new self when we said, I believe in Jesus, right? Why do we have to get the new nature but still look at the old nature? You know, our foot, we wake up and we want to do one thing, but our foot's dragging this way, and we're going to learn all about that next week with Michelle. Why? Why did God do that? Why could he not make us perfect like him when we said yes to Jesus? Well, that's all going to happen when we're with him in heaven. But the reason that we still see the old nature, even though we're in the new nature, is because it has to be our choice. See, God already chose us. God wants us already to be with him, but it has to be our choice on a daily basis. It has to be We have to choose God. We have to choose Jesus. We have to choose for the Holy Spirit to guide us and to be a part of our lives in every such situation, the good and the bad. So, ladies, when you have a really good day and you know you're speaking to someone and something came out of you and you're just like, whew, I don't know where that came from, go ahead and high-five the Holy Spirit. People will think you're crazy, but that's the Holy Spirit living inside of us. And it's a choice every day to start our morning with Jesus. Paul uses the analogy of slavery to sin and its opposition to slavery to God. So in chapter 7, Paul will now speak about the fact that the believer is also free from the law. Paul uses the same argument, but with a different illustration this time. And that's going to be of marriage. And just as death breaks the vows of marriage, so are death with Christ breaks the union with sin and the law. Remember, ladies, as we are reading this book of Romans to keep the scripture in context, Paul is speaking to those who are still trying to live by the law. They don't have this Jesus died on the cross for my sins thing yet. They haven't grasped it. So when he's talking to those who know the law, He's talking to those who are still trying to live daily by the law. Which we were talking this morning, and it's okay. Some people need the law. Some people need rules in their life. Some people, you can tell them one time, okay, it's done. There's nothing wrong with it. Remember in Matthew 5, Christ said he didn't come to abolish the law. He came to fulfill it. So he's not getting rid of it. It's not that it's bad. It's just now that we have the cross to look for in our lives. So this morning, let's go ahead and look at verses 1 through 13. And I'm just going to break them down, each verse as we go. So let's look with chapter 7, verse 1. 
Go up a little, go up one more verse. We're going to end it in chapter 6, 23, because it's going to flow right into verse 1. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Chapter 7, verse 1. Or do you not know, brethren, for I speak to those who know the law, that the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives. For the woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. But if the husband dies, she is released from the law of her husband. So then if, while her husband lives, she marries another man, she will be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law, so that she is not not an adulteress, though she has married another man. Okay. The law has dominion over a man as long as he lives. Paul makes the point that death ends all obligations and contracts. A wife is no longer bound to her husband if he dies because death ends that contract. In the same manner, our bondage to sin ends at the cross when we accept Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. We are now dead to sin and its power and alive in Christ. Now, throughout the New, the Old Testament and the New, throughout the New Testament, Paul uses the illustration of marriage to show us similarities and awesome truths. The intuition of marriage existed before the fall of Adam in the perfect state of the garden and continues in every tribe, nation, and society, no matter how remote. This dates back to early record. Recorded history, marriage is something that is universal in our own, in our understanding. By law, we are bound to our spouse until death because the two have become one flesh. In the same way, by law, we are bound to our sin nature because that union came when we were born into this world, the sin of Adam. It is our default nature and we operate as one with it. The only way to be separated from that nature is to die to it. Paul said in Romans 6, For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with. Bless you. That we should no longer be slaves to sin. Meaning that when we believed in Jesus Christ as our Savior, our sin nature was crucified with Christ. The law has no legal claim on us because we died to be freed of it. We are free in Christ. We need to understand that we are his bride and have become one with him through faith in him. Verse 4. Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ, that you may be married to another, to him who was raised from the dead that we should bear fruit to God. Married to another means married to Jesus. So if you hear this morning and you're not married, you are married. You're married to Jesus. And we're going to go in more into that. The law of marriage applies to a person as long as both people are alive. But when one spouse dies, the law is no longer in effect because the law of marriage is only binding in life. That is why it was necessary for us to die to sin with Christ. So we could be freed from the union with our old nature. Paul tells us that the reason we died to our old nature was not only to belong to another, 
but also to bear fruit. <laughs> Bearing fruit is a byproduct of marriage. Even as children, we sing songs to that effect. I know you all remember this one. First comes love, then comes marriage, then comes the baby in the baby carriage. We're bearing fruit to that byproduct of marriage. Interesting thing about marriage is that intimacy between a husband and a wife will produce children from that union. The same is true for our marriage in Christ. Paul uses this example of marriage to illustrate the type of union we are to have with Christ. That union will produce fruit from intimacy with him. And what does that intimacy look like? Our morning devotions, our morning prayer, and not just doing your own Bible study, not just doing Romans chapter 7. Doing your own devotion with the Lord. Ask him to give you a scripture or a book of the Bible to read. The church is the bride of Christ. You are the church. So as a born-again believer, you are the bride of Christ. He has chosen you as a wife to bear fruit for his kingdom. The seed is from him. You are the one to bear it and bring it forth. There is no greater honor than to birth what God has sown into your heart and watch it come forth. This might look like ministry, This could look like a change of heart. But you were called according to a purpose. When you were called into Christ Jesus, he freed you from the bondage that held you in order that you could fulfill the destiny in which he created you for. Today, may we continue the Lord's will for our life and continue bearing fruit for his kingdom. For some... Maybe we accepted Jesus a long time ago. But let today be the day that you are married to him. Be married to Jesus. Be married to his word. Have it etched in your heart. So what is the purpose of the new life in Christ? To die in our old ways and live free in Jesus. Verse 5. For when we were in the flesh before conversion, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. Sinful passions which were aroused by the law, meaning now that we know what not to do, our sinful nature desired it even more. Curiosity got the cat. Don't touch it. The plate's hot. We want to touch it. How hot is it? The word members is our body. When we are in sin, we cannot bear good fruit. We bear fruit to death. Do you ever notice how you want to do exactly what you have been instructed not to do? Take, for example, a diet. We've all been on a diet. I have been on, and I am proud to say that South Beach diet worked very well for me, along with exercise. And... It comes with like a two-page list of what not to eat. Well, that two-page list of what not to eat intrigued me. I wanted to know what ricotta cheese tasted like with sugar mixed in it or something crazy. And so don't do this. Our desires are to do it because we're, we're curious. Anyway, so as soon as we read the foods of what to stay away, uh, what to stay away with, my, I was like, no, I want to try it. What does that, sound, what does that taste like? Um... 
So we see the same behavior in children. As soon as you tell them not to do something, they start scheming on how to do those very things. And we become aware of what not to do. That is the moment in which the struggle starts. The same thing happened to us when the law was given. When we knew those things that were instructed to us not to do, that is when the desire for sin came alive on the inside of us, and we wanted to do those things. In the previous passage, Paul is stating again and again that we no longer belong to the sinful nature. We have been freed from it. Verse 6, but now we have been, de- we have been delivered from the law. And related, what was the law? The law did two things, remember. It pointed them back to God, and it, rest- it restrained them from doing sin. That was the two things. The law did not take away the sin nature. It restrained us from doing it. It covered it. So if you can imagine, you are <clears throat> coming to the Passover, which is once a year, and you are coming with your purchased sacrifice for your sin, and let's just say our, uh, covetousness. You would bring it <clears throat> to the priest. Here is my sacrifice. He takes the sacrifice, does the offering, and then tells you, go ahead and go for another year and sin no more. Kind of like a free pass. Here's your pass. So that was what the offering was all about. Free from the law. The law was relational um, as a means for a righteous standing before God. But that was ended when Jesus came. Jesus replaced the law. The difference between living under the law and living according to the Spirit is huge. There is hardly a comparison. That is why Paul says that we serve in a new way. So up to six again, we have been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by. What were you held by? sin so that we should serve in the newness of the spirit and not in the oldness of the letter now by living by the spirit we are living out of the newness of life with the spirit and the mind of christ as our guide our obedience comes from an in-depth understanding of god and not from the mindset of that of a little child trying to live by the rules that he doesn't understand Verse 7, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law, for I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, you shall not covet. God's gift of his law was designed for their good, for obeying the law, that people could experience a fruitful life. Paul's response, certainly not. God forbid he used the strongest nuance of the Greek text to stress that this isn't so. Instead, he illustrates one of the benefits of the law. The law makes us aware of what sin is. The law is what brought about the consciousness of sin and the sense of guilt associated with it so that we could know what sin was. Therefore, the law is not sin. The law is good because it arouses the need within us to recognize we all need a Savior. The law is the vehicle for us to come to Christ. 
and fall upon his mercy and loving kindness. Paul says in Romans 3, Therefore no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. The law, when taught correctly, points us to Christ, which is a good thing. We can say the law was preparing them and setting them up to see that they needed a Savior. Paul is telling us that he himself had not known covetousness unless the law had said, you shall not covet. Hmm. Paul being very open here. What do you suppose he coveted? In my study, I have found some numerous commentary notes that Paul's covetousness could possibly be after prestige. He wanted to excel as a scholar, which, which seems like a noble goal. Yet as he studied the law, he saw that he, the underlying reasons for his pursuit was a hunger for prominence. He wanted people to know how brilliant he was, how holy, how spiritual. He tells us in Philippians 3 that he was the Pharisee of Pharisees. But we too can get caught up in position at our jobs and in our ministries, wanting others to see just how much work we do. We need to be careful that that's exactly what the enemy is looking for. Pride will destroy any ministry and any job position and will eventually tear down what God has wanted for good to glorify him and only him. Verse 8, But sin, taking opportunity by the commandment, produced in me all manner of evil desire, for apart from the law, sin was dead. Sin existed before the law was given, and sin dominated the lives of every human being, dating back to the fall of Adam. With Adam's transgressions, all authority that had been given to him by God was transferred over to Satan legally. Since that time, Satan and the sin nature ruled mankind. Sin had dominion over everyone born into the world, and we were subjected to Satan's kingdom because of it. When the law was given, it merely strengthened the hold of sin upon our lives because it pointed out the obvious, that we were sinners. It gave humankind the means of comparison between God's standards and our shortcomings. If we don't understand who we are in Christ and what he has provided for us in our redemption, then we will never be free from those things that use to keep us in chains. If we are too comfortable with the old nature and its desires, then we will choose to stay in bondage to it even though we are free. And on the other hand, if we are not aware that we have been freed by Jesus Christ when we received our born-again spirit, then we will unknowingly remain in bondage to our previous nature. And that's not what God wants. God does not want us to be in bondage. But if we know we are free based on God's word and we choose to walk in who we are in spirit rather than that we know in the flesh, that is when we will experience the abundant life that Christ Jesus paid a heavy price for us to have. Verse 9, I was alive once without the law, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. 
Sin has been in the world since the time of Adam. However, Paul said in Romans 5.13, before the law was given, sin was in the world. But sin is not taken into account when there is no law. Meaning, God did not impute men with their sins before the time of Moses. He bestowed grace upon them the same way that he operates with us today. When the law came, so did our awareness of God's holiness. However, before this time, Moses with the law, God did not hold sins against mankind because they had no base of understanding of what the requirements were. The same is true for children today. They can't get a speeding ticket at two years old because they don't know the rules, because they can't drive. Verse 10. And the commandment, which was to bring life, I found to bring death. For sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me, and it killed me. Therefore, the law is holy, and the commandment holy and just and good. Paul is speaking to those aware of the law. He, he knew how important adherence to the law was for the Jews. See, the Jews would walk around holding on to the law. They just hold on to it, hold on to it. Paul himself started out as a Pharisee. He was a devout follower of the law and lived by the letter of it. As a teacher of the law, I am sure Paul loved the scriptures and took great pride in following them. Along the way, as he grew in knowledge, he must have realized that living a perfect, holy life to which the law required was impossible. However, he continued to do this until he came face-to-face with Jesus on the road to Damascus. And after that experience, Paul had a revelation of grace. And this revelation led him to pen this very thought. Romans 7.10, the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. The good news for us today is that our salvation is not in the written code. Our salvation is in Jesus. While it is true that the law points out our shortcomings compared to God's righteousness, it also points to only one who has ever fulfilled the law, and that's Jesus. And by trusting in him to save us, his holiness is transferred to us, and we stand before God completely justified. Verse 13 Has then what is good become death to me? Certainly not. But sin, that it might appear sin, was producing death in me through what is good, so that sin, through the commandment, might become exceedingly sinful. So here's the same verse, but in the message translation. Paul is saying, I can already hear your next question. Does that mean I can't even trust what is good? That is the law. Is it good just as dangerous as evil? No, again, sin simply did what sin is so famous for doing, destroying lives. Using the good as a cover to tempt me to do what would finally destroy me by hiding within God's good commandment, sin did far more mischief than it could ever have accomplished on its own. And here Paul raises an important question. In today's passage, did the law, which was good, become death to us? In other words, can something that is good produce something that is evil? Paul's answer was no. 
his reason? The law was simply a means to an end. The law showed us what sin was in order that we would recognize how sinful we really are. It is through the law that the awareness that we need is a savior. It is through the law that the awareness that we need a savior comes. When we see ourselves in our sin-soaked state, say that three times, sin-soaked state, powerless to break free, then we look outside of ourselves for salvation. So the purpose of the law has always been to bring us to Christ, our Savior. Therefore, the law is good, holy, and just, and the outcome, when used properly, brings us life instead of death. 1 Timothy 1. The law was relational rules and sacrifices that kept the Jews in a relationship with God. And at the center was the sinfulness of humanity which made the law necessary. In Christ, we are a new creation, which are now, we are new creations which are now dead to sin and alive in him. There are churches out there that consider themselves Christians and have a number of laws in their church doctrines. Maybe some of you have come from those. In the church that I grew up in, there were people that still believed that you could not cook on Sunday. You could not use electricity on Sunday. And this is with, and then this is within my era. So I am 52 this year, so I'm going to say when I was 25, people were still doing this in my mom and dad's church. They would prepare their food the night before, and then on Sunday morning they would have their uh, meals, eat them cold, and they would have no electricity and go to bed when the sun went down. Crazy. Uh, my parents to this day still believe that if you're not baptized in their church, you're not going to go to heaven. And um, they will not pass out communion if you are not a member of their church. It's only for that church. So I'm sure you can think of many examples yourself, and maybe you've experienced coming out of some of these churches that have given out false doctrine. And maybe you sit here today free from rules and regulations. And then, so why are they false doctrines? Because they go completely against the word of God, as taught to us by Paul and by Jesus himself. Many churches today tragically stay away from teaching Romans for this very reason because it puts their doctrine in question. So in closing, I'm early. The Christian life as women, as part of the bride of Christ, is Christ living through us today. We can't do it ourselves, nor can we do it by the law, or should we do it by the law. It is only in walking in spirit with our Lord Jesus Christ that we as believers are able to experience the blessing and freedom from a former life. And let us pray and read our Bibles daily, and not just your Bible study, but ask God to show you what to read. Pick a book and start to read the story. There's so many fabulous stories. And look for opportunities to witness and share God's gift of salvation every day. Amen? Amen. Now, part two comes next week when we are going to learn about how we want to do good, but our feet trample on the other direction. So, pray with me and let's stand for one more song. Father God, thank you this morning, Lord, for 
teaching us your word, Lord. And it might be hard to process, Lord, hard to accept, hard to understand. But I ask, Lord, Holy Spirit, that you would just come and guide us through our readings, guide us through our time and our study, Lord. And when we don't understand something, Lord, I ask that you will just teach us in those quiet moments, Lord, and help us to know your word. Lord, let it be etched on our hearts. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.